1991, terror echoes through the halls of a children's ward in a hospital in Lincolnshire, England. Few could believe the truth that would be unveiled as to who had caused the tragic deaths of four children and attempted to steal the lives of nine more children. This is the case of Beverly Allett, the angel of death. Trigger warnings, child death, medical jargon, Munchausen syndrome and Munchausen by proxy syndrome, anorexia nervosa and self-inflicted injuries. Hello fellow shit detectives and welcome to another episode as part of our Angels of Death Month. This is another heavy case, so if you aren't in a good mindset to listen to topics discussing all of what was mentioned in the trigger warnings, then please take care of yourself and we hope to see you in a future episode. Now, let's put on our detective hats and grab the magnifying glass and delve right in with the background. Beverly Allett was born on the 4th of October 1968 and grew up in the village of Corby Glen near the town of Grantham. Her father Richard worked in an off-licence and her mother worked as a school cleaner. Beverly exhibited some worrying tendencies in her early childhood while growing up as one of four children, having two sisters and a brother. It is said that she would wear bandages and casts over wounds that she would use to draw attention to herself though she wouldn't actually allow for those around her to examine her injuries. As an overweight adolescent, her attention-seeking behaviour increased. It's said that she would show aggression towards others and spent a considerable amount of time in hospitals, seeking medical attention for a string of physical ailments. This culminated in the removal of her perfectly healthy appendix. The healing process for this was slow, and it's claimed that this is because she insisted on interfering with the surgical scar. Beverly was also known to self-inflict injuries and had also resorted to doctor hopping, which is something seen very often in those with factitious disorder. In the case of Beverly, she doctor hopped as medical practitioners became familiar with her attention-seeking behaviours. When this behaviour failed to elicit the desired reactions in others, Beverly resorted to harming others in order to satisfy her desire for attention. This is thought to be when the factitious disorder evolved into factitious disorder imposed on another. Beverly attended Charles Reed Secondary Modern School after having failed the test to enter Stephen and Grantham's Girl School. She would often volunteer for babysitting jobs in her adolescence. Beverly left school at 18 and went on to study at Grantham College in Lincolnshire and trained as a nurse and was suspected of odd behaviour during her training. For example, she was suspected of smearing feces on the walls in a nursing home. Her absentee level was also incredibly high and this was as a result of a string of illnesses. She was also the only student nurse from her course who failed to get a job. But despite her history of poor attendance and successive failure of her nursing examinations, she was eventually taken on as a temporary six-month contract at the chronically understaffed Grantham and Kev Stephen Hospital in Lincolnshire in 1990. It was here that she began to work on a children's ward, which was called Ward 4 in 1991, and she was employed as a stated enrolled nurse. Her boyfriend at the time would later describe her as aggressive, manipulative and deceptive. He claimed that she would falsify 
a pregnancy test, as well as being the victim of the R word before the end of their relationship. Her medical records from 1985 indicate that Alit was a psychologically disturbed individual who was prone to self-injury. Before we continue, let's take a quick break to answer last week's true crime quiz question. Last week's question was, what was one nickname given to the charismatic serial killer enforcer Charles Sabraj, who terrorised the Southeast Asian hippie trail in the 1970s? The moniker was also the title of a BBC slash Netflix series starring Jenna Louise Coleman as the Sabraj's girlfriend. The answer is the serpent, so if you got it right, it's time to crack open the wine and pour yourself a glass and have a night of relaxation. You deserve it. And please don't forget that if you're enjoying this episode, click that like button and subscribe for more. And stay tuned for this week's true crime quiz question later on in the episode. Now, let's get back to the case with the crime. To set the scene a little bit, it's important to note that Grantham and Kestephen Hospital was chronically understaffed, as previously mentioned, and this meant that there were only two trained nurses on the day shift and one for nights when she started working there. Her first victim was Liam Taylor. He was seven weeks old at the time and had been admitted for a chest infection. He had started to improve after the administration of antibiotics. But, following his parents being sent home to rest on the 20th of February, 1991, he mysteriously took a turn for the worst. Despite being hooked up to alarms to monitor his breathing and oxygen saturation levels, doctors were only alerted to his sudden deterioration by Alit. When his parents returned, Beverly told his parents that Liam had suffered a respiratory emergency, but he had recovered. Beverly then volunteered for an extra night duty so that she could watch over Liam. His parents chose to spend the night at the hospital with their son as well. Unfortunately, he would suffer another respiratory crisis shortly after midnight. He got through it satisfactorily, but then Alit was left alone with him and his condition dramatically worsened. He became deathly pale and red blotches started to appear on his face. Beverly summoned an emergency resuscitation team. Liam suffered a cardiac arrest. Despite the best efforts of the medics, he suffered severe brain damage and was only alive with the help of life support machines. He was put on life support, but tragically, he passed away due to a heart attack while in his mum's arms the following day, after his parents made the agonizing decision to remove his life support. His cause of death was recorded as heart failure. Liam's dramatic relapse confused consultants on the ward who questioned why none of the alarms had sounded in time. Timothy Hardwick was 11 years old and had cerebral palsy. He was admitted to the ward after suffering an epileptic seizure. Before we continue this episode, it's that time where I'm going to get go a bit into what cerebral palsy is, so strap yourselves in. Cerebral palsy is the name of a group of lifelong conditions that affect movement and coordination and is caused by an issue with the brain that develops before, during or soon after birth. The symptoms aren't usually obvious just after a baby is born, but they become noticeable from an early age. The symptoms include delays in reaching developmental milestones. For example, a baby may not be sitting without support by eight months or they may not be walking by 18 months. 
They may seem too stiff or too floppy. They could have weak arms or legs. They may be fidgety, jerky, or have clumsy movements. They may have random, uncontrolled movements, walking on tiptoes. They may also have a range of other problems, like issues with swallowing, speaking, vision, and learning disabilities. The severity of these symptoms can vary significantly. While some people may only have minor problems, others may be severely disabled. Cerebral palsy can happen if the baby's brain hasn't developed normally while they're in the womb or is damaged during or soon after birth. Some of the causes of cerebral palsy include bleeding in the baby's brain or reduced blood or oxygen supply to the brain, infections caught during pregnancy, the brain temporarily not getting enough oxygen during a difficult birth, meningitis or a serious head injury. However, in many cases, the exact cause of cerebral palsy, unfortunately, isn't clear. Back to the case. Timothy has fallen asleep with his breathing and heart rate stable, but 30 minutes later, Beverly would raise the alarm that he was dying. The emergency resuscitation team found him without a pulse and turning blue. Resuscitation attempts were made, but they couldn't restart his heart and he sadly passed away on the 5th of March 1991. An autopsy later performed an autopsy was later performed and failed to provide an obvious cause of death. Officially his epilepsy was blamed for his untimely passing. Then there was Kaylee Desmond, who was originally admitted on the 3rd of March 1991. She was one year old when she almost died due to being injected with air five days later. She was resuscitated after the injected air had caused her lungs to collapse, triggering two cardiac arrests, all in the same bed where Liam Taylor had died a fortnight before. Kaylee was left with severe learning difficulties following the attack and is currently on antidepressants to treat anxiety as she fears that the nurse who attacked her will come back to get her. She would be transferred to another hospital in Nottingham where attending physicians discovered an unusual puncture hole under her armpit during a thorough examination. They also discovered an air bubble located near the puncture mark, which they attributed to an accidental injection. Paul Crampton was a five-month-old baby who had been admitted to the ward for a chest infection on the 20th of March 1991. Just before his discharge, there would be three separate occasions that day where he was overdosed with insulin. Beverly would, want, would again be the one to summon help as Paul seemed to be suffering from insulin shock and almost went into a coma. On e yeah, and almost went into a coma on each of these three separate occasions. Each time the medics managed to revive him but couldn't explain the sudden fluctuation in his insulin levels. He'd be transferred to another hospital by ambulance. This other hospital was in Nottingham, where thankfully he recovered. But Beverly would ride with him in the ambulance. Again he had been found to be having too much insulin, but he was fortunate enough to have survived. Five-year-old Bradley Gibson was admitted to the ward with pneumonia. 
He would go on to suffer two cardiac arrests on the 21st of March 1991. Luckily, medics were able to resuscitate him. Subsequent blood tests would reveal that his insulin levels were too high, which puzzled the attending physicians. He too was transferred to another not he too was transferred to another hospital in Nottingham where he recovered. Yet despite the alarming sudden increase in the incidence of unexplained health events, all in the presence of Beverly, there were absolutely no suspicions roused. Yit Hong Chang was two years old when he was admitted to the ward following a fall on the 21st of March 1991. Suddenly he turned blue and appeared in considerable distress when yet again Beverly raised the alarm. His oxygen saturation levels plummeted but he responded well to oxygen therapy. Another attack resulted in him being transferred to another hospital in Nottingham, where he would also recover. His sudden, <coughs> his sudden symptoms were attributed to a fractured skull as the result of a fall. Becky and Katie Phillips were identical twins and were two months old when Becky was admitted to the ward for gastroenteritis. Oh, I've got in my head on how to pronounce gastroenteritis. Becky was admitted to the ward for gastroenteritis on the 1st of April 1991. She had been a premature baby and had been kept in for observations, however she would receive an insulin overdose. Beverly raised the alarm and claimed that Becky appeared hypoglycemic and cold to the touch, but no ailment was found. She was sent home, she was sent home with her mom, but during the night she suddenly went into convulsions and cried out in apparent pain. A doctor suggested that she had colic and her parents kept her in their bed for observation but sadly she lost her life during the night. An autopsy was performed and pathologists couldn't find a clear cause of death. The doctors were concerned that whatever had caused Becky's death could also affect Katie so she was admitted to hospital for monitoring and this would seal her tragic fate. Within hours of being admitted, four attempts on baby Katie's life would be made their attempts to suffocate alongside injections of insulin and potassium. Potassium toxicity, also known as hyperkalemia. Let's begin by breaking down the word hyperkalemia. Hyper means high. Cal is in reference to kalium, which is the oldie time word for potassium, and emia meaning presence in blood. So, a nerve impulse is stimulated by sensory nerve endings or the passage of impulse from another neuron. The impulse itself is due to ions crossing the cell membrane. At rest, the nerve is polarised, but on stimulation, sodium floods into the cell causing depolarization and a charge sent down the axon. Potassium floods out of the cell. so. As you can tell, sodium and potassium are pretty important when it comes to nerve cell impulses. Hyperkalemia can affect the muscles that control the heartbeat and breathing, which can lead to complications such as trouble breathing, irregular heart rhythms and paralysis. Anyway, back to the case. Katie was put on life support 
where she suffered from epileptic fits and was eventually transferred to Queen's Medical Centre after she had stopped breathing for a second time. It was found that five of her ribs were broken. Unfortunately, she wouldn't make a full recovery. She suffered from permanent brain damage, partial paralysis, cerebral palsy, hearing damage, partial blindness due to oxygen deprivation, and her parents were so grateful to Alec for her care of Becky that they asked her to be Katie's godmother, and Beverly willingly accepted the offer. There would be four more victims, however the high incidences of unexplained attacks in an otherwise healthy patients and Beverly's presence during each of the attacks finally aroused suspicion at the hospital. Claire Peck was 15 months old when she was admitted to the ward following an asthma attack on the 22nd of April 1991. She was put on a ventilator and left in Beverly's care. She would later go on to, she would later go into cardiac arrest. She was resuscitated but would die after a second episode of cardiac arrest following an interval where she was left alone with Alit again. She would become the fourth child to die on the ward in two months. It was Claire's death that would bring an end to the heinous attacks on the children's ward. With the crimes established, let's delve right into the investigation. Despite the autopsy suggesting that Claire died due to natural causes, an inquiry was initiated by a consultant at the hospital, Dr Nelson Porter. He was concerned by the incredibly high number of cardiac arrests over the previous two months in the children's ward. Sudden cardiac arrest is very rare in young people, especially children. Respiratory arrest is more likely. Despite this, it doesn't mean that sudden cardiac arrest can't happen in young people. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, around 2,000 seemingly healthy people under 25 in the US die of sudden cardiac arrest. However, this is across a much bigger country, and in this case, multiple sudden cardiac arrests had occurred in children in two months in one single ward. Respiratory arrest is more common in paediatric patients. It can occur for many reasons, but it's more likely to happen because of three main reasons. The first being infection. Bacterial or viral infections such as the flu and sepsis can exhaust the body of its oxygen stores. This creates an imbalance in the blood that leads to acute respiratory failure. Often, allergies can lead to an asthma attack, making asthma the second potential reason as it can cause a child to struggle for breath. And the third, being reactive airway disease, which is similar to asthma. This is a reversible condition that narrows the airways and is often caused by allergens or infections. The reason children and infants have a higher risk of acute respiratory failure is because their respiratory systems are not fully developed. Their thoracic walls, which contain the lungs, are not fully formed and the ribs that surround that area still contain cartilage that haven't turned completely to bone. Due to this, it can be difficult for a child to take a deep breath because the area is not quite strong enough for a high demand of oxygen. Initially, the suspect for the high percentage of sudden cardiac arrest was an airborne virus, but nothing was found. Then a test was conducted that revealed high levels of potassium in baby Claire's blood which resulted in the police being called 18 days later. Her body was exhumed and revealed traces of lignocaine in her system. This is a drug that is used during cardiac arrest 
but it's never given to a baby. Stuart Clifton was the police superintendent assigned to the investigation and he suspected foul play. He examined the other suspicious cases that had occurred in the previous two months and what he discovered was an inordinately high doses of insulin in most. All of the evidence seemed to reveal that Beverly had reported the key missing to the insulin refrigerator. Records were checked and parents of the victims were interviewed and even a security camera was installed. Suspicions continued to rise when it was found through the record checks that there were missing daily nursing logs which corresponded to when Paul Crampton had been on the ward. 25 separate suspicious episodes were identified with 13 different victims, four of whom had lost their lives and the only common factor for every episode was the presence of Beverly Allett. We are going to take a brief break here for this week's true crime quiz question. So gather in fellow shit detectives, put on your detective hats and see if you know the answer to the following question. Which infamous American kidnapper, murderer and R-worder twice managed to escape custody before his execution by the electric chair in 1989 for killing 30 women? If you think you know the answer, please comment it down below or on our other social media platforms and stay tuned for our next episode to see if you were right. And don't forget to give us a like and subscribe. Now, back to the case. Arrest and trial. On the 26th of July 1991, the police felt that they had gathered sufficient evidence to charge Beverly Allett with murder. However, it wasn't until November of the same year that she was formally charged. While under interrogation, Beverly seemed calm and showed restraint. She denied any part in the attacks and insisted that she had simply been caring for the victims. But a search of her home revealed the puzzle pieces as police found parts of the missing nursing log. Police conducted extensive background checks, which indicated a pattern of behaviour that pointed to a very serious personality disorder. It revealed that Beverly exhibited symptoms of both Munchausen syndrome, now known as factitious disorder, and Munchausen's by proxy, now known as factitious disorder imposed on another. We've covered factitious disorder in more depth than in two previous episodes, Medical Murder and Medical Mendacity. So if you want a more comprehensive insight, please go and check out those episodes. But to give a brief hint to the disorder, it is characterised by getting attention through illness. With factitious disorder, physical or psychological symptoms are either self-induced or feigned in oneself to gain attention. With factitious disorder opposed on another, it involves inflicting injury on others to gain attention for oneself, usually to make oneself look like the hero. Beverly's behaviour in adolescence, as previously described in the background, was the typical of fictitious disorder. When this behaviour had failed to elicit the desired reactions in others, she started to bring harm to her young patients so that she could satisfy her need for attention and to be noticed. However, even though there were the visits and assessments conducted by a number of healthcare professionals while she was incarcerated, Beverly continued to refuse to confess to what she had done. Following through a series of hearings, she was charged with four counts of murder, 11 counts of attempted murder, and 11 counts of causing grievous bodily harm. She rapidly lost weight and developed anorexia nervosa as she awaited her trial, which was just a further indication of her psychological ill health. 
There were numerous delays due to her illnesses, where she did lose £70, but eventually she did go on trial at Nottingham Crown Court on the February 15, 1993, during which prosecutors demonstrated to the jury how pres her presence had been the only common denominator at each of the suspicious episodes and the fact that there was a sudden lack of these suspicious episodes when she was taken off of the ward. The evidence regarding the high readings of insulin and potassium in each of the victims alongside the drug injection and puncture marks were also attributed to Beverly. Further accusations included her cutting off her victim's oxygen supply, either by smothering or by tampering with machines. It was brought to light regarding her abnormal behaviour in childhood, and the paediatric expert Professor Roy Meadow explained in court Munchausen syndrome and Munchausen by proxy syndrome to the jury. He pointed out how Beverly demonstrated the symptoms of both and introduced evidence of her typical post-arrest behaviour and high incidence of illness which had led to the delay in her trial. It was in the professional opinion of Professor Meadows that Beverly Allett would never be cured and he made it clear that she was a danger to anyone with whom she may come into contact with. Following a trial that lasted almost two months, of which Beverly only attended 16 days because of continued illness, she was convicted on May 23, 1993. She was given 13 life sentences for murder and attempted murder. This was the harshest sentence that had ever been delivered to a female. According to Mr Justice Latham, it was commensurate with the horrific suffering of the victims, their families and the ignominy that she had brought upon the nursing as a profession. In the aftermath of Beverly Allett, the impact that the case had on Grantham and Kevston Hospital was so severe that it ended in the maternity unit being shut down. And Beverly didn't go to prison either. Instead, she was incarcerated at Rampton Secure Hospital in Nottingham, which is a high security facility housing that predominantly detained individuals under the Mental Health Act. During her time as an inmate at Rampton, she initiated her behaviour once more by ingesting ground glass and pouring boiling hot water on her hand. She has since subsequently admitted to three of the murders and six of the assaults that she had been charged for. She is on the Home Office list of, of criminals who will never be eligible for parole because of the absolute appalling nature of her crimes. There have been accusations that the Rampton is more like a Butlin's holiday camp than a prison, most notably by Chris Taylor, the father of Liam, Beverly Allett's first victim. Rampton Secure Hospital has approximately 1,400 staff that deal with 400 inmates and cost the taxpayers approximately £3,000 per week per inmate to administer. In 2001, there were also reports that Beverly Allett was going to marry a fellow inmate called Mark Heggie. However, she is currently still single. In May 2005, she was the subject of a mirror newspaper inquiry that revealed that she was receiving over £40,000 in state benefits since her incarceration. So this is like a little post-editing note. Um, 
The £40,000 in state benefits she had received was in total, not annually. In August 2006, she even had the audacity to apply for a review of her sentence, which led to the probation service to contact the victim's family about the process. She has remained at Rampton. In 2001, the government released the long-awaited plans to reform the regulation of nursing, which had reverberations well beyond the profession. It was a move that was part of a wider strategy and was precipitated by a catalogue of medical scandals. It was designed to clip the wings of the professionals and give the public and politicians a bigger say in how they are governed. It began in April 2001 with nurses and the professions allied to medicine. Under the plans, a new regulatory body known as the Nursing and Midwifery Council took over the UK Central Council for Nursing, Midwifery and Health Visiting, which had governed nurses for 22 years. The NMC was designed to be smaller than its predecessor and had as many lay members as professionals. It was given the power to impose a wider range of sanctions on airing nurses to ensure decisions were reached faster and more effectively. But above all, it was to ensure that nurses could be held more accountable to patients and the wider public. Claire Perry headed the change management group that oversaw the transition process and believed that the changes would help employers by making training more relevant to service needs. In addition to everything previously mentioned, the extra powers were given to the NMC to check on a new recruit's health and character, as well as professional aptitude. And it was designed to aid in rooting out rogue nurses. Claire Perry is quoted as saying at the time, quote, I'm not sure you will ever be able to stop a shipman or a Beverly Allen who were utterly determined to kill patients. But this should make a big difference with the more common examples of misconduct. The plans that were put into place also sought to close worrying loopholes in the monitoring process, which was the failure of many trusts to check on nurses' backgrounds before taking them on. This act was the Health Professions Order 2001 and meant that there were registers for just about all healthcare and allied healthcare professionals. As described, this is how the NFC came to be, but is also how the Health and Care Professions Council came to be, which is now the regulatory body for many allied healthcare professions, which include, and we are going to list, there's many of the lesser-known allied healthcare profession roles here. You know, do our bit to raise awareness of these hidden heroes. So you've got hearing aid dispensers, clinical scientists, prosthetists and orthotists, chiropodists and podiatrists, operating department practitioners. So, due to the growth of this role since COVID, we personally believe they should now be regulated by the NMC and be renamed perioperative nurses. We also think nurses already working within the field of the operating department who have also undergone additional training. We also think nurses 
already working within the field of the operating department who have undergone the additional training should also be given the specialist title of perioperative nurses. But this is just our opinion based off the growth of the role. And on to our thoughts and opinions. Jesus Christ. This I was a hard case. I thought you were saying that, not my thing then. No. <laughs> it's actually in it. Jesus Christ. This was such a hard case to write about and discuss. It was just... It was on the same level as trying to write the script last week for... Well, for the last two episodes on Lucy Letby. They are very hard to write about. They are very hard to discuss. They make you angry. They make you emotional. You just want to feel your eyes out. When writing this script, I found it so difficult and my heart truly goes out to all of the victims and their families. At the same time, I'm thankful for some of the aftermath and how it, alongside other medical scandals, changed the healthcare profession so that professionals could be held more accountable. But, at the same time, I feel she has not been punished justly. And when I say that, after having researched the case, I am in full agreement that Rampton is more like Butlin's holiday than it is a prison. Than it is a prison. And to find out how much she had received in benefits. No, she shouldn't be getting benefits in prison. That's just further cost to the taxpayer and allows her freedoms that she shouldn't have, in my opinion. To me, that feels as though she's on a permanent vacation with a chuffing wage coming in. I mean, it's not like she's paying for rent and gas and electric in a cost of living crisis. She just shouldn't have it. To me, it feels like she's on this permanent vacation rather than being punished for stealing the lives of four children and potentially ruining the lives of 13 others. Beverly Allett, though she may be psychologically unwell, she is also truly evil and an absolutely despicable woman. Well, yes, her crimes are abhorrent in nature and should never have been allowed to occur. When considering things like this, especially from a psychological point of view, you have to be able to detach yourself emotionally. She was and is a very sick woman with severe mental health issues and with the limited research in that area, that I, at least the limited research that I'm aware of, it suggests that there are roots in conditions, the roots of the conditions that she suffers from are based in generalised anxiety. So yes, she uses a lot of taxpayers' money, but in my view, due to the fact that she's on the same list of people who are never going to get out again as Robert Maudsley, you have to ask yourself how humane it is to put her in a prison that would deny her that mental health care and support. To me, that would be on par with Robert Maudsley's box. I'm very and sincerely hopeful that this case is one of those ones that comes up 
regularly to allow the NHS administrations and the government to learn and make it and keep it so that nothing can happen like this ever again. Sadly, I don't think that's going to be the case given the recent events of Lucy Letby. My thoughts go out to the families and the victims, especially those who had made Beverly Allett their godmother. That honestly leaves a horrible taste in my mouth and I wasn't even personally affected, so I can only imagine what that's done for them. Credit to the NHS Trust though, they saw these unexplained attacks and they got the children out where they could. I believe that is very likely to be the reason that her victim count is actually so low when you consider how hard it is to catch killers like this. I also think that maybe part of the reason that she refused to accept her guilt or and acknowledge her guilt could be the fact that she disassociated during the attacks themselves, which as I've just said, could be why she refused to acknowledge what she had done. And part of the reasons why I think that she maybe confessed to it later is that part of the work that she's done at the Rampton has been to encourage her reflection and that she's starting to accept that she did in fact do it. I think that stuff like the day rolls and stuff, she realised she'd lost time and in that time she'd been around the cupboard with the drugs or what have you so she took them to cover her tracks because she couldn't account for where she was and if any of the drugs got found missing which they would she couldn't account for it well i do respect your professional opinion especially since psychology is your thing i do have to um I do have to say that I do agree. What the hell is she getting benefits for? Where's she going? What's she doing? Yeah, that's what they got. What they got a Tesco? That's why I'm like, it feels like a permanent vacation because what's she spending forty thousand pounds on? Maybe it's inheritance for her kids or something. I don't know if she's got kids or anything like that. But maybe it's inheritance. It's still benefits from the government. Yeah, I know. Like, so maybe it's going to her credit family. sort of benefits. Oh yeah, I know. I'll just say maybe it's gone to her family. No, it's going to her. I know it's going to her. I'm saying maybe it's for inheritance so it can go to family later. No, I, I just, I don't think that she should be in receipt oh. of anything. I mean, she doesn't have to pay rent. She doesn't have to pay gas and electric. So what's she spending all the money on? Don't what? be spending what? it on. How's she getting the benefit? Never mind that. How's she getting the benefit? That system is built to reject you on every basic principle have you got a job no have you are you going to get a job no are you doing your job search no <laughs> are you meant to are you meant for work no i can walk <laughs> i worked really hard in the hospital you know oh that's what i mean i just that's why it feels like a permanent vacation because she could be doing like full-blown shops on amazon She's buying herself shit tons of crap. That she then can't have because she's in a high security facility. So why is she getting basically an income? It's uh, oh, that's a horrible joke, Sabrina. That's not even a joke, it's a horrible thought. 
you think that she's getting those babies, those born again babies? The reborn dolls. Yeah. No idea, but I think I do think she. I mean, she's costing what was it, three thousand pounds a week to be in that in to be there. And then yeah. she's getting forty thousand dollars on top in, well, forty thousand pounds on top in benefits. I mean, that's not a month, but the, 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 well, still the benefits. I can't work out how she's getting the benefits, to be honest with you. Um, but the that some of that money that she's spent that she's costing us a week is going to be stuff that is paying for like the professional care and the therapies and stuff like that. It's. It's one of those hard ones because people are like, oh, well, you know, it's it's not a prison, it's it's just a vacay. There's always the joke that people make where they're like, oh, well, I'll just plead capacity. Um, it's still a prison, it's still a rigid routine. It's just got more freedom in the terms of they're not the going... The food will be shit. It's a hospital. <laughs> I hope um, that the food is worse than hospital food. Oh, you hope it's like <laughs> airplane food? Yeah, I'm, that's what I hope. I hope that the food is like airplane food. Like, because you can get some pretty good hospital food. I mean, they, recently in NHS Trust, there's a um, shop in there, and oh god, the pastries at that shop are amazing, and they do hazelnut hot chocolates, and it is lovely. But the same. And I don't want her having access to any of that. She needs to have full-blown airplane mode, airplane food. People who have out. committed crimes like this should be punished with airplane food, at the very least. Yeah, I think that's the ultimate thing, the ultimate crime deterrent. You'll have airplane food. <laughs> it would deter me. It deters me from being on an airplane. I've never I've never eaten on a plane. I did a twenty four oh no, hang on. How long is it to Mexico? Like sixteen hours or something stupid. It's like nine hours. Oh, I did one of them and I didn't eat a damn thing. Yeah, well airplane food sucks. Um but she should be getting that at the very least. She shouldn't be all comfortable getting really good meals and stuff like that. And you can become accustomed to hospital food. I've done it. Ow. Yeah. I like she hospital food. She should be on food. the list. Anyway, I only have potatoes, but yeah. Airplane food. That is what she should be getting. At least get rid of some of the comforts. And I hope to God she does not have access to a TV in her room. I don't think so. Because that, that, cause I think that's one of the things they don't get because it's like um, potential triggers and stuff like that. You don't know what's going to come up. So I think they get like DVDs that are pre-screened and stuff like that so they know what's going to come up and stuff. I hope they get all the rubbish films. Like none of the good stuff. I hope they will have Marley and me and they cry on a daily basis. Like I say, I just... 
she took people's lives. I feel that there should be some sort of punishment there. Yeah. Doesn't feel just that, yes, I understand that she's medically, un- she's psychologically unwell, but her crimes were still evil. And for that, she still did them. She still knew yeah. she was doing them. Yeah. There should be some form of punishment. And she knew right from wrong. Yeah. She must have known right from wrong because otherwise she would have been found not guilty by way of insanity. Instead, she was found guilty. Yeah. Honestly, I hope that if she is getting benefits, like all or 100% of what she gets is uh, given out to the families. Otherwise, I don't think she should be getting them at all. Yeah, I can see where you're going with that. Personally, if it were me that had lost a child because of somebody like her, I wouldn't want anything coming from them. No, well, no amount of money is going to make it right, but... I mean, it would also at be least a constant that... reminder. Yeah, that's true. It'd be a constant reminder of what... Unless the family's got a lump sum from the courts and then she's paying back the courts. Through the government fund. Yeah. So really, the court's paying back themselves, but... Maybe it's a pension. <laughs> oh, again, she shouldn't get a pension. She she only worked there for like she only worked for like two years. She shouldn't be getting a pension. She's just the. Anyway, shall we leave it there? Yeah. No pension. Airplane food, ultimate crime deterrence. Yes. Oh, and Molly and me on every day. Yeah, Molly and me on every day. Um, airplane food solves your problem. Okay, so, I'm going to put this out to our listeners as well quickly to comment. What do you think could be added? to make it less of a luxury. We understand she's uh, mentally unwell, so she can't really be in a prison. She needs a mental health support, but how do we make it a little less luxurious, make it a bit more like it's also a punishment? Comment in the comment section below. Uh, that's a wrap for this episode. If you like this episode, please give us a like, comment and subscribe if you're joining us on YouTube. And if you're joining us on another platform, give us a rating and a follow. Don't forget to share us amongst your friends because it all helps with boosting us in the algorithm. Please don't forget to join us on other social media platforms such as Facebook, TikTok, Instagram or Threads when I remember that it exists. And we hope to see you again next week. Bye. Bye.